Chapter Twenty Six of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Six. Lincoln and Grant, their personal relations, Grant's successes at Chattanooga, appointed lieutenant general, Grant's first visit to Washington, his meeting with Lincoln, Lincoln's first impressions of Grant the first General Lincoln had found, that presidential grub, true version of the whiskey anecdote, Lincoln tells Grant the story of Sykes's dog, we'd better let Mr. Grant have his own way, Grant's estimate of Lincoln. From the hour of Grant's triumph at Vicksburg to the close of the war, Lincoln never withdrew his confidence from the quiet, persistent, unpretending man who led our armies slowly but surely along the path of victory. As soon as the campaign at Vicksburg was over, Grant's sphere of operations was enlarged by his appointment to the command of the military division of the Mississippi. In November following, he fought the famous battles of Chattanooga, including Lookout Mountain, and Missionary Ridge, and aided by his efficient corps commanders, Sherman, Thomas, and Hooker, gained a succession of brilliant victories for the Union cause. The wisdom of Grant's policy of concentration and fighting it out had now become apparent. President Lincoln had watched closely the progress of these events, and had come to recognize in Grant the master spirit of the war on the northern side. Accordingly, he determined to give him general command of all the Union armies. In December 1863, a bill was introduced in the Senate by Hon. E. B. Washburn of Illinois, and passed both houses of Congress, creating the rank of lieutenant-general in the Army. President Lincoln approved the act and immediately nominated Grant for the position. The nomination was confirmed, and on the 17th of March, 1864, Grant issued his first order as lieutenant-general, assuming command of the armies of the United States, and announcing that his headquarters would be in the field, and until further orders, with the Army of the Potomac. Of this army, he shrewdly remarked that it seemed to him it had never fought its battles through. He proposed, first of all, to teach that army not to be afraid of Lee. I had known him personally, said Grant, and knew that he was mortal. With characteristic energy he formed a simple but comprehensive plan of operations both east and west, sending Sherman on his great march to Atlanta and the sea, while he with the Army of the Potomac pushed straight for Richmond. These operations were vigorously urged, and when they were ended the war was ended. It was but little more than a year from the date of Grant's commission as lieutenant-general till he received Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Immediately upon Grant's appointment as lieutenant-general, he was summoned to Washington. It was his first visit to the capital since the war began, and he was a stranger to nearly every one from the President down. He arrived in the city on the 8th of March, 1864, taking quarters at Willard's Hotel, where, when he went in to dinner, none knew the quiet, rather stumpy-looking man, who came in leading a little boy, the boy who had ridden by his father's side through all the campaign of Vicksburg but soon it was whispered about who was in the room, and there was a loud call for three cheers for Ulysses S. Grant, which were given with a will. In the evening General Grant attended a reception at the White House, passing in with the throng alone and unannounced. The quick eye of the President discovered the identity of the modest soldier, and he was most heartily welcomed. 
As soon as it was known that he was present, the pressure of the crowd to see the hero of Vicksburg was so great that he was forced to shelter himself behind a sofa. So irrepressible was the desire to see him that Secretary Seward finally induced him to mount a sofa, that his curiosity might be gratified. When parting from the President, he said, This has been rather the warmest campaign I have witnessed during the war. A graphic account of this interesting event is given by Secretary Wells, who records in his diary, March ninth, 1864, went last evening to the presidential reception, quite a gathering. Very many that are not usually seen at receptions were attracted thither, I presume, from the fact that General Grant was expected to be there. He came about half-past nine. I was near the center of the reception-room when a stir and buzz attracted attention, and it was whispered that General Grant had arrived. The room was not full, the crowd having passed through to the East Room. I saw some men in uniform standing at the entrance, and one of them, a short, brown, dark-haired man, was talking with the President. There was hesitation, a degree of awkwardness in the General. Soon word was passed around. Mr. Seward, General Grant is here. And Seward, who was just behind me, hurried and took the General by the hand, and led him to Mrs. Lincoln, near whom I was standing. The crowd gathered around the circle rapidly, and it being intimated that it would be necessary the throng should pass on, Seward took the general's arm and went with him to the East Room. There was clapping of hands in the next room as he passed through, and all in the East Room joined in it as he entered. The next day at noon the general waited on the President to receive his commission. The interview took place in the Cabinet Room. There were present, besides the members of the Cabinet, General Halleck, a member of Congress, two of General Grant's staff officers, his eldest son, Frederick D. Grant, and the President's private secretary. The ceremony was simple, the President saying, as he proffered the papers, "'The nation's appreciation of what you have done, and its reliance upon you for what remains to be done in the existing great struggle, are now presented with this commission, constituting you lieutenant-general in the Army of the United States. With this high honor devolves upon you also a corresponding responsibility.' as the country herein trusts you so under god it will sustain you i scarcely need to add that with what i here speak for the nation goes my own hearty personal concurrence the general responded briefly promising to accept the commission with gratitude for the high honor conferred with the aid of the noble armies that have fought on so many fields for our common country it will be my earnest endeavor not to disappoint your expectations I feel the full weight of the responsibilities now devolving on me, and I know that if they are met it will be due to those armies, and above all to the favor of that providence which leads both nations and men." Before assuming personal command of the Army of the Potomac, as he had determined to do, General Grant found it necessary to return once more to the West. In his parting interview with Lincoln he was urged to remain to dinner the next day and meet a brilliant party whom the lady of the White House had invited to do him special honor. The general answered apologetically, "'Mrs. Lincoln must excuse me. I must be in Tennessee at a given time.' "'But we can't excuse you,' said the President. "'Mrs. Lincoln's dinner without you would be Hamlet with Hamlet left out.' "'I appreciate the honor Mrs. Lincoln would do me,' said the general. "'But time is very important now. I ought to be at the front and a dinner to me means a million dollars a day lost to the country." Lincoln was pleased with this answer, 
and said cheerfully, "'Well, we'll have the dinner without you.'" After Lincoln's first meeting with General Grant he was asked regarding his personal impressions of the new commander. He replied, "'Well, I hardly know what to think of him. He's the quietest little fellow you ever saw. He makes the least fuss of any man I ever knew. I believe on several occasions he has been in this room a minute or so before I knew he was here. It's about so all around. The only evidence you have that he's in any particular place is that he makes things move." To a subsequent inquiry as to his estimate of Grant's military capacities, Lincoln responded with emphasis, "'Grant is the first general I've had. He's a general.' "'How do you mean, Mr. Lincoln?' his visitor asked. "'Well, I'll tell you what I mean,' replied Lincoln. "'You know how it's been with all the rest. As soon as I put a man in command of the army, he'd come to me with the plan of a campaign, and about as much as to say, "'Now I don't believe I can do it, but if you say so I'll try it on.' and so put the responsibility of success or failure on me. They all wanted me to be the general. Now it isn't so with Grant. He hasn't told me what his plans are. I don't know, and I don't want to know. I am glad to find a man who can go ahead without me. When any of the rest set out on a campaign they'd look over matters and pick out some one thing they were short of, and they knew I couldn't give them, and tell me they couldn't hope to win unless they had it and it was most generally cavalry. Now when Grant took hold I was waiting to see what his pet impossibility would be, and I reckoned it would be cavalry, of course, for we hadn't horses enough to mount what men we had. There were fifteen thousand men or thereabouts up near Harper's Ferry, and no horses to put them on. Well, the other day Grant sent to me about these very men just as I expected, but what he wanted to know was whether he could make infantry of them or disband him. He doesn't ask impossibilities of me, and he's the first general I've had that didn't." On another occasion Lincoln said of Grant, "'The great thing about him is his cool persistency of purpose. He is not easily excited, and he has the grip of a bulldog. When he once gets his teeth in, nothing can shake him off.'" The President's satisfaction with the new commander was speedily communicated to him in a characteristically frank manner, in a letter dated April 30, 1864. Lieutenant General Grant, not expecting to see you before the spring campaign opens, I wish to express in this way my entire satisfaction with what you have done up to this time, so far as I understand it. The particulars of your plan I neither know nor seek to know. You are vigilant and self-reliant, and pleased with this I wish not to obtrude any restraints or constraints upon you, while I am very anxious that any great disaster or capture of our men in great numbers shall be avoided, I know that these points are less likely to escape your attention than they would be mine. If there be anything wanting which is in my power to give, do not fail to let me know it. And now, with a brave army and a just cause, may God sustain you. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. General Grant himself wrote on this point, In my first interview with Mr. Lincoln alone, he stated to me that he had never professed to be a military man, or to know how campaigns should be conducted, and never wanted to interfere in them, but that procrastination on the part of commanders, 
and the pressure of the people at the North and Congress, which was always with him, forced him into issuing his series of military orders—one, two, three, etc. He did not know but they were all wrong, and did know that some of them were. All he wanted, or had ever wanted, was someone who would take the responsibility and act, and call on him for all the assistance needed, pledging himself to use all the power of the government in rendering such assistance. The President told me he did not want to know what I proposed to do, but he submitted a plan of campaign of his own, which he wanted me to hear, and then do as I pleased about. He brought out a map of Virginia on which he had evidently marked every position occupied by the Federal and Confederate armies up to that time. He pointed out on the map two streams which empty into the Potomac, and suggested that the army might be moved on boats and landed between the mouths of these streams. We would then have the Potomac to bring our supplies, and the tributaries would protect our flanks while we moved out. I listened respectfully, but did not suggest that the same streams would protect Lee's flanks while he was shutting us up. General Horace Porter, for some time Grant's chief of staff, says, The nearest Mr. Lincoln ever came to giving General Grant an order for the movement of troops was during Early's raid upon Washington. On July 10, 1864, he telegraphed a long dispatch from Washington which contained the following language. What I think is that you should provide to retain your hold where you are, certainly, and bring the rest with you personally, and make a vigorous effort to defeat the enemy's force in this vicinity. I think there is really a fair chance to do this, if the movement is prompt. This is what I think, given upon your suggestion, and is not an order. Grant replied that on reflection he thought it would have a bad effect for him to leave City Point then his headquarters, in front of Richmond and Petersburg, and the President was satisfied with the dispositions which Grant made for the repulse of Early without taking command against him in person. A curious incident revealing the intense interest with which Lincoln watched the career of Grant is related by Mr. J. Russell Jones, an old and trusted friend of the President, who joined the army at Vicksburg in time to witness its final triumph. Soon after Mr. Jones's return to Chicago, the President summoned him to Washington. With eager haste, after the first salutations were over, Lincoln declared the object for which he had secured the interview. "'I have sent for you, Mr. Jones, to know if that man Grant wants to be President.' Mr. Jones, although somewhat astonished at the question and the circumstances under which it was asked, replied at once, "'No, Mr. President. Are you sure?' queried the latter. "'Yes,' said Mr. Jones, perfectly sure. "'I have just come from Vicksburg. I have seen General Grant frequently, and talked fully and freely with him about that, and every other question. And I know he has no political aspirations whatever, and certainly none for the Presidency. His only desire is to see you re-elected, and to do what he can under your orders to put down the rebellion, and restore peace to the country.' "'Ah, Mr. Jones,' said Lincoln, "'you have lifted a great weight off my mind, and done me an immense amount of good. For I tell you, my friend, no man knows how deeply that presidential grub gnaws till he has had it himself.' We cannot believe that Lincoln cherished any feeling whatever political ambition he might nourish. It was rather his desire to be assured of the single-hearted purpose of a military leader 
whom he had trusted and to whom he wished to confide still more important services in the conduct of the war. It may be remembered that early in the war an anecdote went the rounds of the press to the effect that in reply to a complaint that Grant had been guilty of drunkenness in the campaigns in the West, Lincoln remarked that he would like to find out what kind of liquor Grant drank, so that he might send some of it to the other generals. The true version of that characteristic anecdote is this, as given by the late Judge T. Lyle Dickey, who was a judge of the Illinois Supreme Court at the time of his death, and at the time of Grant's famous Vicksburg campaign was on the general's staff as Chief of Cavalry. Judge, then Colonel, Dickey, had been sent to Washington with private dispatches for the President and the Secretary of War. Lincoln and Dickey had been intimate friends for years, and during the latter's visit to the former on that occasion Dickey remarked, "'I hear that someone has been trying to poison you against Grant by reporting that he gets drunk. I wish to assure you, Mr. President, that there is not a scintilla of truth in the report.' "'Oh, Colonel,' replied the President, "'we get all sorts of reports here.' but I'll say this to you, that if those accusing General Grant of getting drunk will tell me where he gets his whiskey, I will get a lot of it and send it around to some of the other generals, who are badly in need of something of the kind." After Lincoln and General Grant had become personally intimate, they had many enjoyable conversations and exchanges of anecdotes. Lincoln especially enjoyed telling the General of the various persons who had come to him with complaints and criticisms about the Vicksburg campaign. "'After the place had actually surrendered,' said the President, "'I thought it was about time to shut down on this sort of thing. So one day, when a delegation came to see me, and had spent half an hour trying to show me the fatal mistake you had made in paroling Pemberton's army, and insisting that the rebels would violate their paroles and in less than a month confront you again in the ranks, and have to be whipped all over again, I thought I could get rid of them best by telling them a story about Sykes's dog. Have you ever heard about Sykes's yellow dog?" said I to the spokesman of the delegation. He said he hadn't. Well, I must tell you about him, said I. Sykes had a yellow dog he set great store by, but there were a lot of small boys around the village, and that's always a bad thing for dogs, you know. These boys didn't share Sykes's views, and they were not disposed to let the dog have a fair show. Even Sykes had to admit that the dog was getting unpopular. In fact, it was soon seen that a prejudice was growing up against that dog that threatened to wreck all his future prospects in life. The boys, after meditating how they could get the best of him, finally fixed up a cartridge with a long fuse, put the cartridge in a piece of meat, dropped the meat in the road in front of Sykes's door, and then perched themselves on a fence a good distance off with the end of the fuse in their hands. Then they whistled for the dog. When he came out he scented the bait and bolted the meat, cartridge and all. The boys touched off the fuse with a cigar, and in about a second a report came from that dog that sounded like a small clap of thunder. Sykes came bouncing out of the house and yelled, "'What's up? Anything busted?' There was no reply except a snicker from the small boys roosting on the fence. But as Sykes looked up he saw the whole air filled with pieces of yellow dog. He picked up the biggest piece he could find, a portion of the back, with a part of the tail still hanging to it, and after turning it around and looking it all over he said, "'Well, I guess he'll never be much account again.' 
as a dog. And I guess Pemberton's forces will never be much account again as an army. The delegation began looking around for their hats before I had quite got to the end of the story, and I was never bothered any more about superseding the commander of the Army of the Tennessee. When General Grant was ready to begin active operations with the Army of the Potomac, he sent forward all available men from Washington. Secretary Stanton, anxious about the safety of the city, said to Grant one day, General, I suppose you have left us enough men to strongly garrison the forts? No, I can't do that, was Grant's quiet answer. Why not? Why not? repeated the secretary nervously. Because I have already sent the men to the front. Said the secretary, still more nervously, That won't do. It's contrary to my plans. I cannot allow it. I will order the men back. To this Grant returned with quiet determination, I shall need the men there, and you cannot order them back. "'Why not? Why not?' cried the secretary. "'I believe that I rank the secretary in this matter,' remarked Grant. "'Very well. We will see the President about that,' responded the secretary sharply. "'I will have to take you to the President. That is right. The President ranks us both.' So they went to the President, and the secretary, turning to General Grant, said, "'Now, General, state your case.' But the General calmly replied, "'I have no case to state. I am satisfied as it is.' This threw the burden of statement on Secretary Stanton, and was excellent strategy. Meanwhile, General Grant had the men. When the Secretary had concluded, Lincoln crossed his legs, rested his elbow on his knee, and said in his quaint way, with a twinkle in his eye, "'Now, Mr. Secretary, you know we have been trying to manage this army for nearly three years, and you know we haven't done much with it. We sent over the mountains and brought Mr. Grant, as Mrs. Grant calls him, to manage it for us. And now I guess we'd better let Mr. Grant have his own way." And Mr. Grant had it. The favorable opinion which Lincoln held of Grant was strongly reciprocated. A short time before the former's death, Grant said, "'I regard Lincoln as one of the greatest of men. He is unquestionably the greatest man I have ever encountered. The more I see of him and exchange views with him, the more he impresses me. I admire his courage, and respect the firmness he always displays. Many think from the gentleness of his character that he has a yielding nature, but while he has the courage to change his mind when convinced that he is wrong, he has all the tenacity of purpose which could be desired in a great statesman. His quickness of perception often astonishes me. Long before the statement of a complicated question is finished, his mind will grasp the main points, and he will seem to comprehend the whole subject better than the person who is stating it. He will take rank in history alongside of Washington. End of chapter 26 Recording by Bill Borst